Welcome back to Locally Famous DPQ. This is going to be part two of the African American history of Dubuque, Iowa. In part one, we learned that Dubuque, Iowa, in its very earliest days, had one of the biggest black populations in Iowa. That was mostly due to the lead mining. We learned that early politicians and um, high political figures were slave owners. We learned that the editor of the Herald and a lot of powerful people were not very welcoming of the new free black people coming from the south to the north. We tackle this topic now because of the George Floyd incident. There are a lot of thoughts going around as to what this time for our country means. But I want to take some time to still just shine light on this and acknowledge it. And that's going to be the way that we start to move forward, I hope. So far, we've tackled everything that's happened before, up to, and through the Civil War. And now we're going to dive into life after the Civil War. After the Civil War, some blacks worked on the riverboats where they found some support among their fellow workers. In 1866, the white members of a crew on a packet boat went on strike for better pay. While many of the white crew members had some money for food, the 30 blacks had nothing, leading to the following story in the Dubuque Daily Herald. Commendable Sympathy We are informed that the whole crews that lately left the service of the packet company were soliciting subscriptions yesterday to aid the black crews who were without money consequent upon their refusal to work as per contract. The company owes each man $37.80, not one cent of which will be paid unless they resume work and continue until the season of navigation closes. In passing, a crowd of the black crews yesterday, one of them was humming in melancholy tone the popular refrain, All the work in dark and dreary, everywhere I roam, on dark on darkies how my heart grows weary, far from the old folks at home. The efforts of the white boatmen among the people of Dubuque had success. Helping the blacks, the Negro roustabouts of the key city, who left the boat for an increase in wages, are hanging around a levee without a morsel to eat or a cent in their pockets and would starve to death for all the notice the abolitionists take of them. The Copperheads are their real friends in their hour of need. They have furnished them with victuals and besides the $25 previously, collected $15 last Friday to relieve their wants. Many, a needy boatman, has given liberally to keep their poor blacks from starving and they are beginning to find out who their true friends are. The Rivermen. That is, the white rastabots and deckhands take a lively interest in their welfare and will see to it that the poor Negro is supplied with food and clothing, if nothing more. 
the boarding houses, groceries, and bakeries downtown contributed a certain daily to keep the 30 blacks from suffering. Strikes spread to other boats in the late summer of 1866. The Dubuque Herald expected that the packet company would have no trouble finding plenty of men working along the river to be substitutes. Instead, the company returned to Cincinnati, Ohio, where 206 blacks were hired as strikebreakers to replace striking blacks and whites. When the body of an African-American floater was found on the Mississippi River, the Dubuque Herald commented, We should not be surprised. When another colored crew left the city for their home in Cincinnati, the article went on to say, Cologne must come down in price now. There is no use for it until next season. In September, the new black crew members decided to strike, as reported in the Dubuque Herald. A sassafras colored blank in town went down to the levee and whispered something in their ears when they all left the boat in a body without any notice at all after she had been loaded in Dunleith and was ready to start for this side of the river. In response, the company sent an agent to Cincinnati to hire 300 whites to work as crew members. The newspaper commented that these strikes were not unexpected, as a blank is no better than a white man, and they all want more. Businesses that did not discriminate had public opinion with which to be concerned. To the editor of the Dubuque Herald, having recently been a resident of the city, I would like to inquire whether it is customary for the landlords in first-class hotels to seat the colored with the white folks at the table. Having been an eyewitness to the proceeding, we, for one, protest against the custom of mixing boarders it, in this promiscuous manner. We respect a Negro in his place and cannot but believe that such a course will be injurious of the reputation of the house and offensive to the traveling public. In 1866, the following editorial appeared in the Dubuque Herald. A colored petition. A petition is being circulated through town asking the Board of Education to provide schools for the education of colored children. A copperhead says that if such schools are established, blank will flock here in swarms to get larnin, and that the gas will have to be left on all day to find the way through town. A Democrat is asked if he would not rather have them by themselves than mixed with the whites, and on this appeal several have signed the petition. On the other hand, it is argued that there is no employment here for any blank and no danger of them coming. Sometimes it appeared the writer was not aware of his or her racism. In a report on the newly opened school for blacks, an editorial in the Dubuque Herald remarked that 17 scholars came in all sizes, ages, and shades of complexion, straight hair, curly hair, and wool. They are quiet and orderly with a determination to learn something if they only get a chance. On September 12, 1867, 12-year-old Susan Clark was denied admission to Muscatine's Second Ward Common School No. 2 because she was black. 
Her father, Alexander Clark, filed a lawsuit to allow admission of his daughter to the public schools. In 1868, the Iowa Supreme Court held that separate was not equal and ordered Susan Clark, an African-American, admitted to the public schools. This effectively integrated Iowa schools 96 years before the federal court decision, Brown v. the Board of Education in Topeka, did the same thing on a national scale. It would be expected that the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Dubuque would have had access to copies of the Christian record. First published in 1854 by the Reverend J.P. Campbell, this early edition was short-lived. In 1861, under Alicia Weaver, the new series, Volume 1, began. Benjamin T. Tanner became editor in 1867 and was followed in that position in 1885 by the Reverend Benjamin F. Lee, who served until 1892. Violence in the South was reported in factual terms. It was provided images of the black situation throughout the country. The Information Wanted page that continued for years, week after week, inquiries about broken families, the enforced separation of parents, children, brothers, sisters, all relationships created by slavery in the South. Legislative support was passed in Iowa, supporting racial equality and black civil rights. In 1868, Iowa residents supported a referendum allowing blacks to vote. In 1880, the word white was removed for qualification to serve as a, a state legislator. The passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1884 entitled African Americans to the full and equal enjoyment of the accommodations, advantages, facilities, and privileges of inns, public conveyances, barber shops, theaters, and other places of amusement. Passage of laws, however, did not ensure that racial prejudice did not occur. A horse appearing at the Dubuque Driving Park was named N-Boy. In September 1847, according to the Dubuque Herald, a blank colored citizen or blank the reader may choose out either appellation he pleases. In obedience to the civil rights acted was installed at one of the tables for breakfast. The waiter refused to serve the person and walked out, taking most of the staff with her. This enforcement of the civil rights bill attests to the truth of the old adage, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Cases of reverse discrimination, however, also occurred, if less frequently. On January 27, 1873, African Americans held a black ball in the Dubuque City Hall. When a white woman tried to enter the premises, she was escorted out by a marshal. The Dubuque Herald stated that the ten couples present hoed it down until daylight. Another dance was held for African Americans at the Dunleith Market House the following month. The same white woman retaliated by not allowing her husband to perform with his band which played at the event. Accommodations by and recognition from whites for African Americans were reported. Black crew members of the Belle of La Crosse walked off the boat in May 1873 over pay that had fallen from $45 to $35. 
without food or lodging, they were allowed to stay in the city courtroom from Saturday until Monday. The wage issue was settled and they rejoined the boat. Residents of Dubuque found in the same year that the first black had been seated as a juror in the United States District Court of Iowa. The Dubuque Herald reported that Joel J. Epps of Fayette County, owner of one of the finest farms in the county and rated a clear-headed man held the honor. In the same year, Theophilus Augustus Thompson, a resident of Dubuque, was recognized as the first African-American chess expert and published a book, Chess Problems, Either to Play and Mate. Ridicule, however, remained the primary reason to feature stories of African-Americans. A colored knot reported the instance of a black man forgetting to get a marriage license and included the derogatory comment. Robert Glove and Hattie Delano, two of the colored aristocracy of the city. On August 24, 1873, the editors of the Dubuque Herald felt it worth the space to include the following as news. A gentleman of color entered a bookstore yesterday and inquired, Mr. Got any dem artings you put letter in? I forgets if they are in wellpunts or overalls. Just give me 10 cents, woof. Struggling against bigotry, African-Americans met in the market hall on the evening of July 8, 1873. Those in attendance supported a proposal to celebrate the emancipation of slaves in the British West Indies in 1834, the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, and the passage of the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution. The event was planned for August 1st, and the black residents of Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa were invited. The very legislative successes of African Americans became the basis of racial slurs by 1875. The following story appeared in the June 13, 1875 issue of the Dubuque Herald. A good yoke is told on our friend Stamier of how he was fleeced by a 15th Amendment, more recently known as a civil rights member of the community. The blank was hired in advance to clean a vault in the rear of Mr. Stamier's property. The blank worked a couple of hours, made a hole in the ground, and bustled around as though big things were to follow his efforts. Mr. Stamier walked out the following morning to see a good job done, and lo and behold, his eyes and nose were astonished. Sambo had departed leaving his job half done. Mr. Stamier will not be confiding in the colored race. There are no surer now than they were before the Civil Rights Bill was passed, and act like some of the white trash. In December 1875, the following notice was printed in the Dubuque Herald. Carve that possum. The blank are to have an opossum supper under the auspices of the coach whip band. Lively times are anticipated. In 1875, Dubuque's African-American population let it be known that they wanted to join in the celebration of the 100th birthday of Irish patriot Daniel O'Connell. The invitation was accepted by the O'Connell Centennial Committee and a meeting of African-Americans was called. 
Mr. E. Blackstone reminded those in attendance it was the first time African Americans living in Dubuque had ever been asked to join any procession on anything like an equal footing with the whites. It was moved and seconded to wear the O'Connell badge and carry the American flag. It was then moved and seconded that all who would join in the parade should stand. The entire audience rose to its feet. Following the example of other groups, Dubuque's African-American community planned a picnic at McKnight's Springs on August 2, 1875. Upon returning to the city, a grand ball was to be held. A similar event was held in August 1876 to celebrate emancipation. The Dubuque Herald reported that 48 African-American couples traveled to Specks Ferry for a day of dancing, croquet, athletic sports, and singing to their heart's content. A half dozen genteel young men cut an elephant figure yesterday reeling along White Street. They had better take pattern after their colored brethren. Dubuque audiences in 1875 enjoyed traveling African-American entertainment groups like the Georgia Minstrels, mixing music and comedy. The performers studied the local community and received applause by working local information into their act. The Dubuque Herald was also generous with its praise of a Mr. Green, the colored hunter, who it described as the most successful sportsman in procuring birds for the embalming taxidermy being learned by a number of our citizens. As the American centennial grew closer, the Dubuque Herald even chose to criticize Clinton for only paying a colored band a total of $75 for playing on the afternoon and evening of July 4th. The extremely popular Coachwit Band, led by the King Hatch, was chosen to attend Dubuque's centennial celebration. Locally, the appeal of the group was the theme of the following story from the Dubuque Herald. An enterprising miner recently thought so much of King Hatch, the leader of the Coach Whip Band, that he publicly hugged and kissed him. Things are a-workin'. While successes were achieved, backsliding or simple neglect of laws occurred. In 1875, the American senior body of the International Organization of Good Templars voted to allow separate lodges and grand lodges for white and black members to accommodate the practice of segregation in southern states in the United States. In 1876, British members failed in achieving amendment to end this practice and left to establish a separate international body. In 1887, this and the American body were finally reconciled into a single IOGT. Dubuque took many years before recognizing the 1868 Iowa Supreme Court decision involving separate but equal education. The Board of Education in Dubuque disbanded the colored school in 1870 and admitted blacks to ward schools. Faced with great opposition from white residents, however, the decision was then repealed. The board president cited mingling of the races caused discord in the school for the reason of excluding the colored children. 
In September 1875, the president of the school board appoint Miss Minnie Blackweedle as the teacher for the colored school, located at the corner of Locust and 7th. The board had agreed to hire any competent person the black community could find as a teacher, but since no agreement had been reached, the appointment was made. On August 1876, the Board of Education appointed a committee of two of its members to find a more suitable room for the colored school. Finally, in 1877, a group of black parents petitioned the Board of Education in Dubuque to send their children to public schools. The Dubuque Herald staff noted that the board are not so ignorant of the Supreme Court decision, but so long as the entire community were satisfied with the separate school, it was unwise to disturb it. The board voted against the parents, but the district court overturned the ruling. The all-black school was closed and local schools became integrated. The increased participation of the African-American community in politics was seen in the presidential election of 1876. Reverend Cheek, a black minister speaking at a Republican gathering at the Globe Hall, said that the black man should think and act for himself without intimidation or dictation from either party. He would rejoice at the election of Hayes, but believed it was a compliment to the colored race that they were the arbitrators of the destinies of so great a nation. African Americans were also willing to pursue their cases within the legal system. In 1876, Mr. Bell, a local barber, had the local police use a search warrant to inspect the premises of a Mr. Duchini in an accused umbrella wrestler. By 1877, the tone of newspaper articles appeared to have changed. In July, an article referred to a picnic of many of the city's blacks north of town. In August, the following appeared. The sociable at the African M.E. Church last evening was well attended and greatly enjoyed by those present. The singing of Professor was a pleasing attraction. On September 7, 1877, the Dubuque Herald announced without comment that the local African-American community had purchased the Old Stone Church. The most progressive reform made in years locally was the incorporation on September 19, 1877 of the Dubuque Charity Hospital, which was available to anyone regardless of age, sex, nationality, creed, or color. October 9, 1877 was an election day. Readers of the Dubuque Herald were reminded when a free man, regardless of color, enjoys the rights of suffrage and votes for the man of his choice. A return to the tone of earlier days came in 1878 in an article entitled Dark Doings. The Dubuque Herald described what it concluded was the founding of a darky lodge of odd fellows. The sousing with cold water during an initiation was determined to be the reason some of our colored population have turned several shades whiter. The marriage of a colored man from Dubuque to a white woman of Platteville caused the Herald to remark, Whither are we drifting? 
Whites attending services at the African-American church on Locust in February 1878, according to the Dubuque Herald, were white trash. Bob Lynch, the colored barber, was apparently unusual enough to include the information in this title to an article dealing with the naming of jurors for 1879. The concern with interracial dating was evident from the lengthy editorial carried in the Dubuque Herald on April 6, 1879. Seated together in the dress circle of the Opera House last evening were a young colored man and a young white woman. The dusky descendant of some thoroughbred Ethiopian escorted his white companion of the gentler sex both to and from the theater, and it was observed. When the performance was over, they linked arms when going out. The young woman was a blonde, and her, arm, and her flaxen hair trailed down her back, the end of which was tied with a ribbon. She was well-dressed and appeared utterly unconscious at the contempt with which her white sisters viewed her. The sight of that couple sitting so lovingly together was calculated to draw down the vengeance of the gods. Honestly, I'm getting uh, a bit of whiplash here from reading this article. It keeps going back and forth. Um, obviously, there are some people at the Herald who have some pretty strong opinions and you know the written word lasts a lot longer um, because you can go back and, and see it. After the Civil War there were some glimpses of progressivism in Dubuque. We said that you know blacks could vote and blacks could serve uh, in legislative duties. We said that the blacks could go to school with the whites, which all sounded really good, but it didn't really happen the way it was supposed to, and it took longer than just passing the laws. Segregation seemed to be a very popular public opinion, and it wasn't going anywhere. I finished the article with an actual thing that was written in the Dubuque Herald about a black man and a white woman woman who went to the theater together. And it's just unbelievable. And I know that I'm just scratching the surface of everything that is going on, but it is really hard to sit here and read the things that actually went on in our past with racism. I appreciate everybody hanging out and I don't necessarily look forward to part three, but I hope you come back and check it out.